there was a young man, uh, he was born in uh, Shechem in ancient Samaria, not long after uh, uh, John, the, the beloved disciple, wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, his parents were not Christians, uh, they were quite pagan. Uh, and he began to look for meaning uh, to life. And so he tried all the philosophies of the day, he tried Stoicism, that didn't do it for him. Um, he uh, ran into a, a traveling philosopher uh, who was called a peripatetic. Peri mean, is a preposition in Greek, which means to go, go around. Pateo means to walk around. So they were a holy man that would just walk around and share their philosophy with you, but they would do it for a fee. And once he realized the guy was more interested in getting money from him, he, he didn't find purpose and meaning with that philosopher. So he found a, a, a teacher of Platonism and thought, well, maybe Plato's thinking will answer my questions. They did not. And he continued to search for purpose and meaning. One day, uh, when he was uh, near the Mediterranean shoreline at the beach, uh, he ran into an old man. Uh, and the old man began to talk to him about Jesus and share with him what the prophets said about the coming of the Savior. And uh, Justin, being a thinker type, began to connect the dots of the prophecy, finding out that it's impossible for these things to be uttered with this precision for Jesus to fulfill them just by accident. He had to be uh, the Savior and the Messiah. And so uh, after exposure to this old man, uh, he turned to Christ in faith. When he became a believer, he wrote this. He said, a fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and these men who had loved Christ. He said, I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy, speaking of Christianity, alone was true and profitable. That is how and why I became a philosopher, a Christian one, uh, and I wish that everyone felt the same way that I do. His name was Justin. Uh, Justin went on to write prolifically, prolifically uh, to defend Christianity from false thinking. Uh, he established a, a Christian school in uh, Rome, in Italy, uh, and he was known for one who would debate philosophers of the day. There was one man that he debated. Uh, his name was uh, Crescentius, uh, and it, he dispatched Crescentius, a major philosopher uh, uh, at that day and time, around 130 uh, AD. Um, he dispatched his philosophical system quickly, uh, and uh, Serentius didn't like that. And so he told the Roman prefect, his name was uh, Rusticus, uh, that he didn't like the fact that this uh, Christian philosopher had destroyed his philosophical system. So he wanted the prefect to do something about it, uh, because he said this young Christian man uh, didn't worship the gods of the Romans. And so uh, Rusticus uh, called Justin and six of his devout uh, students uh, into his presence, and he said this to them, I want you to deny your faith, I want you to embrace the gods of Rome, and I want you to follow the edicts of the emperor or else. Well, you can imagine what happened. Uh, here, uh, Justin uh, was at a crossroads. I either live out my Christian faith with boldness or courage, or I fold like the proverbial lawn chair. Uh, he exclaimed to the prefect uh, who had in his hand life and death, he said, no one uh, is rightly in, who is rightly minded turns from that which is true to that which is false. Isn't that the truth? No one who is rightly minded turns from that which is true to believe that which is false. With that, Rusticus uh, had uh, Justin beheaded after he scourged him, and then he killed all of his young disciples. Um, those young men were at a crossroads of faith. Uh, and God sovereignly put them there. Uh, God's going to put you at a crossroad of your faith in our ever uh, hostile culture where you're gonna have to make a decision. Do I stand up for the Lord or do I sit down? What am I going to do? Am I gonna have bold belief or am I going to buckle? 
Justin was eventually uh, named uh, after his death, Justin Martyr. Uh, why? Well, he had paid for his faith with his life by being bold for Christ. Uh, he's in the lines of a Mordecai and an Esther. Uh, other people 500 years before him who set the example of how to live in a, in a hostile culture for Christ, uh, that God will put you in a situation, a crossroads, where you're going to have to make a decision. And I don't have to come down the ladder of abstraction. I can, I can tell you that there's going to be a crossroad, and you in your mind should already be thinking, yeah, I'm in one right now. I know exactly what it is. I don't really need to tell you what it is, because when, when you're in it or you're approaching it, you're going to know. I have a choice. Uh, support my faith this way or walk away and hide like this. Uh, Mordecai uh, and Esther could have uh, lived a nice quiet life uh, once she became the queen, uh, but God is going to position them to make a, a decision to defend uh, the Jews from ethnic cleansing because the Persians wanted to wipe them all out as we saw in chapter three. And so they're going to uh, get their turn to step up to the proverbial plate uh, and swing away and do something for God. That's your story too. So as we have studied this narrative literature, I've told you it's different studying narrative literature, isn't it? It's different than what we've done in the past. And so we're moving through it like in scenes, like in, like in a movie. And so we're gonna look at the different scenes and we're gonna talk about coming to your own crossroads and what you're going to do where God has placed you. We wanna first look at a scene number one, which is I call the consternation, verses one to four. Uh, says in, in verse one, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, this was Haman uh, getting the signet ring of the king wanting to wipe out all the Jews because he can't stand them in the Persian empire. He did what? Well, if you have a pen, I give you permission to actually write in your Bible. I don't know if you, do you draw in your Bible? Yes. Yeah, you can, you can circle all the verbs here. Uh, hopefully you know what a verb is, right? Yeah, they're talking about language at this church. Yes, we're talking about language. So if you circle all the verbs, what does it say Mordecai did when he found out about the uh, potential genocide of the Israelis within the country? He, what's the first thing he did? Tore, that's a verb. It, it's an action word. Tore his clothes. Next thing he did? Put on sackcloth. What is sackcloth? You don't get this from Nordstrom's, all right? Sackcloth. This is like goat's hair. Have you ever touched a goat? Your city people? I remember the first time I ever got near a goat and he was behind a wire fence and I thought I was good. Next thing I know, I can feel my clothing going inside the fence. It was like a magnet was pulling him in. He's just sitting there eating my clothes. It's like, I can imagine like dressing myself in goat's hair. That's what he did. And then he found a, like a, a fire somewhere that was kind of burned out, found some ashes, took the ashes, threw those on top of his head. Uh, and then he, another verb, he went out in the midst of the city and there's another verb, he wailed. Uh, I've, I've been at funerals where people uh, silently cry. I've been at funerals where they wail. I've seen all of them. And if you've ever lost somebody really close to you, uh, which I have, you understand that the, the emotion uh, of the loss, even if it's a believer, it's, it's a loss of someone that you love. It's like, it comes out from the deep core of your being wailing. See, they proposed to wipe out the Jews in one year. That was Haman's plan, that psychops is working on their brains. And Mordecai's like, my response to this uh, is to do some things to my external body to show how I feel on the internal man. So he's not a man who's afraid to show his emotions. How are you? Let's talk to the man for just a minute. Ladies can just sit there quietly. Do not hit your husband with your elbow, okay? <laughs> men, do you share your emotions? Uh, what, what are those? <laughs> 
Do you share your emotions? Yeah, especially if you have a, a girlfriend or a wife, uh, share your emotions. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, is, it, and it's hard for men to show their emotions. Uh, I, I loved my father, uh, but he wasn't a, like a real emotional kind of person. Uh, he, he wasn't going around telling me he loved me all the time. I just, I just knew he did. But as I got older, uh, you know, I learned to tell my dad I loved him. And he learned to tell me that he loved me. But it took I don't know, 40-something years to do that. Mordecai's like, my people are facing death itself. They're going to try to cleanse us from the land of Persia. Um, I'm going to cry about this. And then it tells us that um, he, 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 showing God by his activity, uh, that he is extremely serious about the situation, which you have to look at yourself and ask, um, when I see injustice in my world, when I see sin uh, encroaching upon that which is holy, uh, when I see this moving in my culture, does it move me to the point of deep emotion? Or I just look at it and go, oh, well, whatever. See, that, that's not a godly person. A godly person is, is overcome by the evil that they see. And so we have a brave, godly man who goes out in public and shows his, his grief for his people, Israel. Verse three says, and each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. What were they doing? Look at the verbs. I think these are participles. What'd they do? They were fasting, weeping, and wailing, and laying on sackcloth and ashes. So the, the courage of one man to show his emotion about the evil perpetrated against the, the Jews, uh, it spreads to the entire nation. Don't tell me one man, one woman can't impact others. Uh, and so he shares his, his, his heart's desire to uh, protect his people and the people follow suit when they get the decree. Um, nowhere in the book does it say they prayed. That's interesting. It says they fasted. It doesn't say they prayed. Uh, how do you know they were praying? Well, one, before I tell you why I think they were praying, uh, because remember the, the name of God is not mentioned in this book. This is why Martin Luther had a problem making this book part of the canon. God's name isn't here, but it's kind of like life. Sometimes God's hand is very pronounced in your life and other times you don't see it, but he's there. And that's what you see in the book of Esther. All the Jews would have known the writings of Isaiah, the prophet, and they would have been quite familiar with Isaiah 50, chapter 43, verse two, where God tells them this as the nation is about to be destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, he, back in 586 BC, he tells the nation, when you pass through the waters, uh, I'll be with you. Uh, and through the rivers, they'll not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you're not gonna be scorched like uh, you know, Daniel's three friends, nor will the flame burn you. And then he throws in this at, at the end of that. He says, why won't this happen to you? I'm the Lord, your God. And he says, I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm your savior. Uh, as I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place. God says, uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to forget you. I don't know how many times I've used that passage in my own life, facing adversity, fire, uh, and, and deep water, where you feel like, Lord, I don't know if I can handle what the doctor just told me. Um, the Lord says, but, but I'm with you and I'm, you're in my sovereign hand. All the Jews knew this. Uh, they're in captivity in Persia uh, and, and they're facing genocide and God's telling them through the prophet's pen, doesn't matter what year it is, I will always be with you in deep water. I'll be with you in the fire. See, they would have known this. So when they're fasting, uh, I think uh, in fasting in the Old Testament is typically uh, paired with uh, praying. Uh, the, Ezra, the priest, uh, 
uh, a few years later in chapter 8, he's anticipating bringing the uh, Israelites uh, with him back over to Israel. Uh, Zerubbabel had left many years before to rebuild the temple. Uh, now Ezra is going to come back and, and rebuild the people like a, a revival. And they're going to bring all of the gold and the silver that Nebuchadnezzar had captured and hauled all the way from Jerusalem uh, over, over into Babylon. They're now going to bring all that gold and silver back with them all across the, the I don't know, five, 600 miles. And there's all kinds of thieves and bandits. So what do you do? You ask for an armed escort. You have a couple drones flying over your party as you caravan. Uh, notice what he says in chapter 8, uh, Ezra, the priest speaking. He says, uh, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to uh, seek from him a safe journey for us with all of this wealth uh, for our little ones and for all of our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had told the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. We told the king, God's with us. Why do we need soldiers for? Uh, because you're carrying gold and silver across about 500 miles of trackless desert. He's like, we, we, we told him the living God is with us. So we can't, we can't take those soldiers. So what did he do in verse 23? He fasted. So three people can read this. So he, fa he fasted and sought sought our God concerning this matter and what happened? He let see the cost effect relationship. You know, God, you're gonna, you're gonna fast, show God that you're really serious about whatever the situation is. God, we need your protection as we travel. So we're gonna fast to show you how serious we are. We're gonna seek your face. That is, that's just another code word for prayer. And then God listened. So, you know, if you look at your prayer life, well, God doesn't seem like he answers me. You ever fasted before? I mean, you ever said, God, I'm going to deny myself things and I'm going to show you how disciplined I am. I need to hear from you. And that's exactly what they did. They, they fasted. So you can go out throughout the Old Testament and easily validate the fact that fasting and praying is just what Jews did. And so I would say that Mordecai, who is compromised, as I said several weeks ago, he and Esther are compromised uh, as Jews to be doing what they're doing uh, in the pagan Persian culture. Uh, he's now having those come to Jesus moments, as we would say. He's realizing this genocidal plan of Haman is way beyond my power. I need, I need God to help me. And so he and the nation are praying. He's, he's outside the city gate wailing. Now he can't go inside the city gate because it's against the law to go inside the city gate where all the politicians are and cry. Don't you find that kind of odd? I mean, what's up with the politicians in Persia? They didn't want anybody to come into the inner sanctum of where the politicians and the kings were because they only wanted that to be the place of great, awesome partying. Go back to chapter three, if you pay attention how it ended. After Haman hatches his genocidal plan to wipe the Jews out, it says that he and the king went out and started drinking. Uh, the king Xerxes is the party boy. He doesn't want to see death and mayhem and all that kind of stuff in his presence. He wants that outside the gate. So if you want to wail, go out there. But who lives inside the citadel with the king? The queen. She's sequestered in the citadel. Uh, and she's going to hear that there's a Jewish guy wailing outside the city gate. Uh, that's her cousin. So she's going to, well, according to verse 4, Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came to her and told the queen, 
uh, and she, she writhed in great anguish that her cousin was in such pain. Uh, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he didn't accept him. She's trying to comfort him. She doesn't know why he's crying because she's the queen. She's out of touch. And if you think, well, why wasn't she in touch? How many of you follow the news closely? Nobody? You know? I don't know about you, I mean, I've got like 10 sites I get up and I read like every day, first thing as, you know, I study my Bible, I was 10 sites, I'm reading what's going on, what's happening in the world, et cetera. I mean, I'm in touch, but not everybody in our, in our church is in touch with politics, right? So you're scared to even talk about it, yeah. I mean, it's just like, I, just, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, and so she's the queen, she's busy being the queen. She has no idea what Haman has planned. She's about to find out. The command comes to her in verses five to six. Uh, it says, then uh, Esther summoned uh, Hattach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend to her. Uh, it's like her aide, her personal aide, and ordered him, this is the command, to go to Mordecai and what? Well, to learn what this was and why it was. So Hattach went out uh, to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. You could, now, this whole scenario and all these scenes, we're gonna have the Hattach and aides going back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. I mean, it must have been like, what in the world is going on? Why don't they just use a cell phone, text each other or something? But it's not that kind of culture. They don't have that kind of technology. So they got to send people out. What, what, what's going on? And so she wants to know, why are you in such a distraught state? He's unconsolable. Now, she was raised by Mordecai, so she knows him. He's not an emotional man. She might not have ever seen him cry. But now she's seeing something about him, like something major must be happening. Well... Hattach goes out to deliver the, the command from the queen. I, I need to know what's going on. Uh, Hattach, by the way, just as a side note, his name in the original text means to be good. It's interesting because this non-believing man does the good thing. I don't know if you ever, it's a whole nother sermon and I've only got 30 minutes. Um, but if you ever look at your life, hasn't God used non-believers in your life to advance the purposes of God? He's done it in my life. And that's what happens through Hattach. Uh, now, the communique is very interesting. It comes from Mordecai, and it's going to go to Esther, because remember, the, the, the eunuch is going back and forth to communicate, communicate between the two, because uh, he can't get inside the city gate because he's in a state of mourning. It says in verse 7, Mordecai told him uh, all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman, uh, the number two guy in the empire, had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the proclamation which he had issued in Susa, their capital, for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, why? To order her to go to the king, implore his favor, and plead with him for her people. Remember, the king doesn't know She's not a Persian. He doesn't know she's a Jew. And he doesn't know the relationship between Esther and Mordecai either. So he's basically telling her, it's time now, Esther, for you to exercise civil disobedience, which is a whole nother sermon, job security for me. Another sermon is when do you disobey? When they ask me to do things that are contrary to the word of God, like ethnic cleansing, to wipe out the Jews, the river to the sea thing, that motif, that anti-Semitism, those are the chosen people of God. Deuteronomy 7 says so. All the blessings started with Israel and starting in, in Genesis 12. Those are his people. The church has been brought in as a grafted vine uh, as, his, as his people too, but God isn't finished with Israel. Just read Romans 9 to 11. And so when you look at a call to, to wipe them out, um, those who are of a godly nature stand up and say, but that's evil, that's wicked. Uh, and that's what Haman is going to do. He's going to give the facts 
uh, to Esther for her to listen to. So what kind of facts does he give her? Well, uh, he tells her, I know exactly how much money Haman is going to pay to bribe the king so that he can attack the Jews. An astronomical amount of money that we studied last week. And then he says, I'm going to give you a hard copy of the decree that Haman constructed to wipe out the Jews. Now, bear in mind, they didn't have photocopying machines. Could you imagine? They didn't even have a mimeograph machine. Remember those? Yeah, they didn't have any of those things. And so he's like, he has a copy of the decree. So you could say that Mordecai is very well connected, isn't he? He knows the exact amount of the bribe money. uh, And he knows, here's the decree, send this to Esther and give her proper intel. Now I asked this of the last service and nobody, nobody even moved a muscle. I gotta walk out of the lights so I can actually see you. Otherwise all I see are lights. Um, are you an Intel officer? See, no one's gonna say. Uh, sorry, I, I can't say. Intel officer, I, and, and I know who some of you are. I won't call you by name, but uh, what's your job? See, they won't say now, because well, if I say, then you'll know I am. Okay, so, so your job is to gather intelligence, correct? And you, it has to be good data. And then based on your intelligence, then you make an action, right? Three people know what Intel officers do. This is really interesting. You can't talk about it, okay. I'll, I'll talk about it for you. So that, that is what an intelligence officer does. So be, before you launch missiles or drones or whatever it is, you have to have good intel. So Mordecai has excellent intel because as I told you last week, are you here? So he's at the city, he's sitting at the city gate. What does that mean? He's some kind of judicial individual, you know? And so based on that, he has access to documents and he has access to intel. And so he can send the queen, look, before we make a decision here for you to use your power and position to save your people, let me give you the intel. What does this mean for you pragmatically? If you're going to be at a crossroad where God places you and you're gonna have to make a choice between doing what God wants you to do or duck and cover and go hide somewhere, you have to have good intel before you make a move. Otherwise, it will dilute what you want to do. So he gives her excellent intel, or it's a, what I call a communique. Uh, verses 9 to 11. Uh, it says in verse 9, Hattach came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. He's a guy's probably winded at this point. He comes back and, uh, and you tell him, well, here's what, here's what Mordecai said. Uh, and notice what she says. Uh, verse 10, Esther spoke to Hattach and ordered him, another command, uh, to reply to Mordecai. Here's what she says, tell him. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court, where his throne is, who is not summoned or not invited, he has but one law, one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. I've not been summoned for how long? Okay, so I'll come over here. So how many are married? You'll admit this, yes, yeah. (laughs) How many are intel officers that are married? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, so if you're, as you're married, because I've been married 43 years, so I know how this, this I think I know how this rolls. Uh, timing is everything, isn't it? Like, like today at 6.30 when the game starts, that's not when you come in and tell your mate, we need to have a serious talk right now. I'm just saying, hold it for like three hours or four, whatever long the game, you know what I'm saying? Isn't timing everything? So it's been 30 days she hasn't talked to her husband. So you can kind of surmise their marriage probably isn't going real good. Could you imagine if you and your wife are in the same compound and you haven't seen her in 30 days? 
probably had some kind of marital argument or something. She's like, and the law of the Persian empire is if you go into his presence unannounced, great probability you're going to get nuked. It's a Hebrew word, (laughs) nuked or toast, whatever. It's over for you because the rule is if you go in and announce without an appointment, uh, if he doesn't extend his golden scepter to you, you know, to touch you and bless you with this thing, it's over. And I haven't seen him for 30 days. So the probability of me getting killed by him, they're, they're great. Great. What is she doing really? Starts with the word R, rationalization. You ever done this? You know, God's telling you, I want you to do this. You're at a crossroads and you're thinking, but I need to stay over here. No, God's telling you, you need to do this. No, no, I can think of a lot of reasons, Lord, why I could stay over here. Don't you do the same thing that she did sometimes? Okay, Lord, if I do this, I might not have a job. Or Lord, if I do this, I probably, uh, I probably won't get promoted. I probably won't get a bonus or something's gonna happen to my kids or probably won't make that particular team or I won't finish my college degree or whatever. You, you go through this thing, right? Something bad's gonna happen. Haven't you done this? You're so quiet this morning. Uh, so she, she's, she's like, get real. I can't just walk in and talk to him. She's at a crossroad. But as I've told you, when I started, God's gonna put you at a crossroad and you're gonna know you're there and you're gonna have to make a decision. I've had to do it many times in my lifetime uh, and you know what you must do. I'll share one with you that I didn't share in the last service because it just hit me while I was sitting there with my wife. When I was a fourth year German student in high school and I was the grader for all the classes, I might've told you this, I might, might not have, but uh, so I was the grader for all those classes. And so the, the, <laughs> I witnessed to all my friends, there tons of my friends were Mormons. I shared Christ with them all the time. We debated and discussed apologetics all the time, all the time. I grew up with them. Uh, the German teacher was the bishop. I didn't know that. I found that out. One day in class, he came to me in my fourth year and he said, uh, Marty, I need to talk to you after class. I'm like, yeah, pasas los. He said, uh, well, uh, a lot of my students here at school are coming to talk to me and telling me that you're disturbing their faith and they want you to stop sharing you know, Christianity with them. I uh, can't do that. Why not? Well, because truth's at stake. Truth and error. I, I have to speak uh, and, and talk about, you know, there's, you know, I, we, we, I need to talk about what is truth because eternity is at stake. He said, well, if you, if you don't stop talking, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do something. I'm like, well, you're, you're going to have to do something, but I have to preach truth, to teach truth to my friends. So what he did to me, so I'm at a crossroad, right? I can either fold like a lawn chair or be brave. I was 18. Uh, and so I, I told him, uh, Herr Isaacson, I, I, I have to speak what the scriptures say. So what he did is he took my, my whole grade was built around a German novel that I had to read. And it was, uh, he gave me one written in East Germany. It was a communist book. And he gave it to me knowing that I'm not gonna read it. And I, I told him, uh, I can't read that. It's written in East Germany. I, I can't read that book. I won't read that book. And he said, if you don't read that book, I'm gonna dock your grade a one grade letter. I said, well, I guess you're docking my grade. You see what I mean? Crossroads. So it affected my GPA going to college. I still got into college. I still got educated, thank God. Uh, God went before me. But it's that whole thing. It's like, I'm 18 years old going, what do I do? You're in a similar situation. God's gonna, it might not be a German class, but you're, it's the same kind of thing. Like, God, what am I gonna do? That, that's, that's her. She's thinking, man, if I, if I just fold here a little bit, it's gonna be easier for me. No, God's telling you, you need to do something. Uh, and so she, she seems to fear her husband. Uh, was her fear rightly founded? Yes. Why? 
because she understood what her husband was about because everybody did. Uh, he was very unpredictable, liked to party, was drunk most of the time. Um, when you study Persian history, I don't think you probably sit around and read Persian history all day long, right? Let me, let me tell you one story about him. Uh, he, was, he was known in their pantheon uh, as the Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda, it's not a car, not a Mazda. Ahura Mazda. Uh, that is the head sky god of their pantheon who rode across the clouds as the great sun uh, traveled. Uh, that's the, the god in their pantheon, Ahura Mazda. Uh, he's the representative of Ahura Mazda on the planet. So he's like the divine one, her husband, Xerxes. And so whatever he says, it's like the God has spoken. So if the God said, you shall not come into my presence without me asking you, and, and I can kill you if you don't have an invitation. I mean, to disrespect him is to disrespect God. And the other thing about her husband that she knew uh, is when he would attack military positions, like when he fought the Greeks, he would like, if they had one Grecian uh, Spartan soldier, whatever, he would throw, for every one, he would throw 30 soldiers at that one soldier. He would just overrun them. And so every young man in that empire was a soldier. Well, there was one father uh, that everybody knew in Persian history uh, that had come to Xerxes because he had five sons. They're all in the military and they were preparing for a big battle. And so the father went to Xerxes and said, I have five sons. Could you please leave one of my sons alone and at home with me for this battle so that I have a progenitor for my family? Kind of the saving Priya Ryan thing, okay? And Xerxes took the son and cut him in half and took his body and put it on the right and the left of the main road that the soldiers walked on as they went to battle. Brutal, ruthless. She knows this about her husband. So when she says, I don't know, I haven't seen him for 30 days and you just don't walk into his presence. You know, she had good reason to have fear about it. But uh, she's gonna overcome her fear as we're going to see. Verses 12 to 14, she gets counsel from Mordecai. What's he tell her? They related the, uh, uh, Esther's words to Mordecai. Uh, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. He tells her in our vernacular, if you think you're gonna get a free pass, uh-uh. Once Haman finds out you're a Jew, you're gonna die like all of us. And then he says, he says, for if you remain silent at this time, I mean, you don't use your power and position to push forth righteousness and guard your people, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And then he, he gives one of the greatest challenges, I think, in the Old Testament. What's he tell her? Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such time as this. This is a huge statement of the providence of God. Um, I don't care if you're a tree trimmer. I've done that job. I don't care if, if you're an admiral at, at the Pentagon. I care what your job, your bank teller, high school coach, whatever your job is, God puts you in that job. Do you understand this? You are there on a divine mission for God. And in that job, whatever that job is, he's gonna give you a crossroad to make a decision to either represent him or fold back into the, into the, uh, the scenery and not be seen. Uh, Mordecai tells her, if you don't step up to the plate, and defend your people, then he's telling you, he's intimating behind the scenes, someone else will rise because God put him there. And his whole statement that you, you've been uh, attained royalty for such a time as this, he's telling her, you're not the queen just because you're really beautiful. He says, you're king because God put you there. So again, wherever it is that you work, or even whatever it is that you do and you don't work, wherever God places you, 
He's placing you there to put you in front of a crossroad to push back evil. What are you going to do? You're going to stand? You're going to stand and be strong in the faith. That's what he's telling her. It's time for you to stand and defend your people, to stand up. Climax is verses 15 to 17, like what she do? So if you graft this chapter out, it's building to a climax. Like if you play a musical instrument, this is the crescendo. Everything else was kind of pianissimo. It's kind of getting to a forte and then bam, this is the climax. What happens? It says, uh, Esther then told, made this reply to Mordecai. Uh, it's her command. What does she want him to do? Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, the cap- capital, and fast for me. And do not eat and drink for three days, day or night. She says, uh, then uh, she said, uh, and I and my maidens, uh, my attendants also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, but I'm going to exercise civil disobedience. And if I perish, I perish. This is not a, the statement of a coward. This is a statement of a very courageous young woman who had a revelation in her life of why she was the queen. She now realizes in the providence of God that God has placed her there and she's not there by accident. And so what does she do? It's very interesting what she does. Number one, she tells Mordecai to have everybody pray for her in the nation. Would you please pray for me and fast for me because I'm gonna go do the difficult thing and I, I want the power of God is what she's saying behind me when I go do this thing. And number two, she says, I'm gonna fast and pray along with all of my maidens now, when you, this is interesting. The maidens could have, been a two, could, could have been a two ethnicities. They could have all been Persians or they could have been Jewish maidens. If they're Jewish maidens, it means these young women all had a spiritual awakening and joined Esther to, to seek God's face and power to overthrow the genocide coming their way. If they're Persian young maidens, it means that Esther had a spiritual impact on all of them. Amazing. As I told you in my State of the Church address, who are you going to lead to Christ this year? It's kind of like that. If they were Persians, she just led them to worshiping God because now they're all going to pray. What's the greatest thing that you should do when you face a crossroad? Pray. And you might need to fast to show God just how serious that you are about what you're going to do. Uh, And when she says, if I perish, I perish, she's basically saying, this cause is worth dying for. When you look at your situation, you have that kind of commitment because God will place you there. And God's gonna tell you, you're in the deep water, I'm with you. You're in the fire, I will not forsake you. You're going to be okay, just do the right thing. I don't know your crossroad, Uh, you know your crossroad. And I've been praying for you this week that God gives you the courage to step up and be counted and to do that which she's calling you to do. It's good to have you in God's house. Why don't you stand as we pray? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to, to look at two real-life believers uh, who lived, compromised part of their lives and then got on fire for you for the other part of their lives uh, and, and did the most brave, courageous thing you could do. Uh, this young lady put her life on the line uh, to guard your chosen people. What a great testimony she is to all of us. Uh, and may you take us wherever you have placed us uh, and challenge us to see clearly what we need to do And then may we have the spiritual tenacity to step forward and speak as she did and knowing that you'll be with us and you will bless us. Thank you for your greatness and the opportunity we have to do great things to advance your kingdom until you return in Christ's name, amen.